Okay, welcome once again to the Realizing Romans class. Um, you're going to find that uh, sometimes I might kind of rewind a little bit and touch on something that maybe we missed or passed over because what I'm doing is I've already created all my notes and all the study material for all 16 chapters of Romans. So I'm going back over and reading it again and watching another commentary's perspective on Romans. And sometimes I'll hear something about, ooh, that's good. i got to write that down and share it with everybody. So there might be times I kind of rewind and a little bit. Um, so this is one of those times. Uh, first of all, I want to go back to Romans chapter 1 really quick. And uh, it ties into the end of the book. But Paul just kind of opens up and he says, Paul, a slave of Messiah Yeshua, called to be an emissary or an apostle, yada, 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 yada. But a lot of people don't know where he wrote Romans from because he did write some of his letters from a prison cell or a dungeon. But this is not the case because in Romans 16, verse 23, it says, Gaius, host to me and the whole community greets you. So it's believed that Paul wrote the letter to the Romans at Gaius's house, that's where he was staying, uh, because he had never, he actually never in person visited these people. He had plans to, he wanted to, even on the missionary journeys, when he was planning on going to Spain, it would have been a good excuse to stop by in Rome. So he tried to work it out, but he actually never met these people in person. But they knew who Paul was, they respected him because they knew he was the, essentially the 13th apostle. Um, and so this Gaius, we're not for sure, but it's likely the Gaius that's mentioned, uh, I think, in Acts or maybe another one of Paul's letters that he baptized. So if it's the case, uh, this Gaius became probably kind of a prominent leader in, in the, in the uh, um, believing community. All right, so that's one thing I wanted to tackle. Another thing is verse 7 of chapter 1. To all those in Rome... Loved by God, called to be kiddoshim, called to be holy ones, called to be saints, grace to you and shalom, peace from our Father and the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. So he's addressing God the Father and God the Son in this verse, but he's making a distinction at the same time. So this might get a little squirrely, a little hairy, a little confusing, but basically what Paul is laying out in Romans is not doctrine that nobody's ever heard of or doctrine that was just oh, a shocker and new to everybody. He was just reiterating what the hard, fast belief was of the Jewish people and of the Hebrew people um, regarding God and regarding his divinity because there was always this room open for the triune Godhead. Now, I'll just say right now, Trinity is not in the scriptures anywhere. That word is not found anywhere. But if you take the scriptures as a whole, it's clear that God manifests himself specifically in three major forms, which is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I like to call it the Godhead. And people are wondering like, okay, well, if God is one, how could he be three and how could there be three in one? Well, that's another brain scratcher for us Westerners, and I've brought this out before, that we only have the concept of one singular we actually do have a plural concept of one, but it's different from the Hebrew concept. So like if I'm addressing you guys as a class, I'll say, all right, everybody, or all right, you all. Or if I say you, I'm saying you, but I'm addressing everybody. So I'm saying you in the plural. So you is singular, 
but yet there's a plural form of you. So it's kind of similar. So in Hebrew, you have the word echad and the word yichad. Echad is the plural form of one. It means one in unity, one in plurality. Um, then you have yichad, which is singular. So the John 3.16 of Judaism is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is echad. The Lord is one. He's one in plurality. Now, because this makes the Jewish people uncomfortable, they'll say, well, what that really means is, is he's, one in, he's one in his majesty. Because majesty is magnified, and so that's how they try to get around the, the concept of the Godhead. But if you read the scriptures from front to cover as a whole, you'll realize that there's God the Father, who manifests himself many times in the form of the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate form of Yeshua. Uh, because this angel didn't have a name like Gabriel, you know, Michael, Raphael, Uriel. You're like, wait, I don't know those names. That's because they're in the Apocrypha, but they're names of angels. So um, then, of course, there's always the spirit of the Lord came to the prophet so-and-so and said, blah, 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 blah. So you have that essence of the three parts of God all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Tanakh and in God the Father and the angel of the Lord, and in the spirit of the Lord. So we see all this kind of come together more clearly and more definely in the renewed covenant, the New Testament. And so Paul is just kind of reiterating what you know ancient uh, um, Hebrews already knew. Now, because this book of Romans, or this letter to the Romans, is addressed to a mixed crowd, we clearly see that the Apostle Paul writes his book in a very Talmudic style, a very rabbinic style, using the rabbinic form of argumentation to bring his points across. This would totally be confusing to the Gentile believers that were within these congregations. So it was essential that the Jewish believers of these Roman congregations explain Paul's words, explain the meaning to the Gentiles. So um, it was as if they were given an opportunity to teach what Paul was really saying so that the Gentiles can understand. So I've already given the example several times before of the Godhead being like H2O, water. It can exist in three forms simultaneously, but it's all water. It can be a gas, a liquid, and a solid. You have a melting ice cube on the table. There's a puddle of water underneath. There's a solid block of ice, and if you look real close, there's gas vapor, steam coming up from the ice. Three forms, but one, you know, one, one element, H2O. So that's kind of the way it is with God. And we are created in God's image. So... There's, even though that God is one, he's one in plurality, there is nonetheless a hierarchy in the Godhead. You have, it is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whenever the Holy Spirit is mentioned or speaking in the, the New Testament scriptures, the Holy Spirit is always pointing to Yeshua, always giving credit and pointing to Jesus. Jesus, in turn, is always giving attention and pointing to the Father. So it's going up the chain of command, so to speak. Now, the Son serves as a mediator, as a mediator. Um, so we see the Father sends the Son to earth. Now, we know in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The only other translation that differs is the New World Translation, which is a Jehovah's Witness translation, which is the translation of a, a cult group, a Christian cult group. They say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. But that is not being honest with what the Greek text says. So it is equating the word with God himself. 
even though God is the Father, He uses the Son, the Word, Yeshua, to be the agent of creation. So, in when He becomes Yeshua, in, in you know, born of the Virgin Mary, He becomes the agent of salvation. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, I just don't understand, you know, how you can have Jesus being God, but being away from God and apart from God. Okay, here's another example. If I turn on the tap, and let's say that all the water that comes out of the sink is from the Tobik. All of that water is Tobik River water. Now, if I got to get a glass and fill that up with Tobik water, everything in that glass is Tobik water. Everything. But it's not the entirety of the Tobik River. But it's still... And so the glass kind of represents the human body, the human essence of Jesus, Yeshua. And what's inside, he's fully God on the inside. Because he had to be fully God in order to have the power to save us and redeem us from our sins. Because, you know, you'll have Jehovah's Witness say, well, no, Jesus is Michael the Archangel. I'm sorry, an angel cannot save me from my sins. An angel is a created being. Yeshua, Jesus, is pre-existing, pre-incarnate. Even the Proverbs hints in calling Jesus wisdom, that, Jesus, that wisdom was there in the beginning of creation. And we see in John 1, he is the agent of creation. So it kind of backs each other up. And, you know, there's, there's no atoning power in an angel. Um, not only that, but you have the prophecy in Isaiah where it says, The virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, uh, and you'll, his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then you have the other verse that says that he will be called, you know, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. When is an angel called a Mighty God? Never. Everlasting Father. Wait, you can't call an angel Everlasting Father. But if Yeshua is the divine Son of God, you can call him both Mighty God and Everlasting Father because he's one with the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Okay. Uh, so... We are created in the image of God, and we are a we are a uh, spirit that has a soul. Sometimes the soul is called the mind. Sometimes the soul is called the heart, and all that is enc is encased in our body. Now, just as Jesus Yeshua is the mediator between God and man, and he's kind of in the middle of the hierarchy, our soul, our mind, our heart is the mediator between our spirit and our body. So let's say God tells my spirit, tells me to go in on visitation and witness to somebody. My heart has to come into agreement with that. And my heart, soul, mind, whatever you want to call it, has to alert my body. Okay, get up off your lazy butt, grab your Bible, grab your tracks, get in the car and drive to so-and-so's house. My body has to comply with what my spirit says. But yet it's my soul that commands my body what to do. So that maybe that will help give you a, a better picture of, of the Godhead and how the Godhead operates. So now we see, uh, you know, Paul say, God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we pray, do we pray to God or do we pray to Jesus? Which one? Or does it matter? It, it kind of matters because didn't Jesus himself teach us how to pray? And what did he say? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., etc. And when we end our prayer, how do we end it? In Jesus' name. In other words, in his power, in his authority, so be it. 
So that's not, that's not to say we can't say thank you, Jesus, praise you, Jesus. But whenever we pray, we pray to God through Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is our mediator. He's our intercessor. And, it's, and, and Jesus always gives credit to the Father, always points us to the Father. So we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus or through the authority of Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, all right. Now let's move on to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. So I hope that was beneficial, kind of doing a little rewind there. And I may do that every once in a while when I come up something new or something really exciting maybe that I didn't touch on previously. All right. So Romans chapter 4. We'll read the first six verses. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was set right by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's quoting Genesis 5, 6. Now I'm going to stop right there and make a quick comment. Have you noticed, and has it ever bothered you, that when you see the New Testament quote Old Testament scriptures, that it doesn't say the exact same thing as your Old Testament scripture does? Have you ever noticed that and wondered why? That's because the New Testament writers are quoting from the Septuagint, which is the New Testament, or New Testament, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's, it's the same meaning, but the word structure is going to be a little bit different, or there might be a little bit different emphasis. So that's why sometimes it doesn't say exactly what the Masoretic Hebrew text says, which our Old Testaments are usually translated from, because the New Testament is quoting from the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was actually what the Jewish believers in the Roman Empire, in the Greek Empire, were reading, because a lot of them didn't know Hebrew, or if they knew Hebrew, it was your basic prayers. They weren't fluent in it. So a lot of them read or you know heard the Old Testament through the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And the rabbis will even say that the Septuagint is pretty much a miracle because the way it was translated is pretty much bang on with the Hebrew as best you can get it because you always lose something translating from one language to another but it's pretty pretty accurate and pretty precise okay so another little rabbit trail let's get back on on task here so it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness which is quoting Genesis 3 uh, 15 6 now to the one who works the pay is not credited as a gift but what as is due but to the one who does not work, but trusts, now the TLV, the, tr the Tree of Life version, as well as the complete Jewish Bible, a lot of times the word trust is what we usually understand as the word faith. Sometimes it's substituted for the word belief. All means the same thing. Uh, faith, trust, belief, all the same thing. So it says, uh, the pay is not credited as a gift, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but trusts in him, who justifies the ungodly, his trust is credited as righteousness. Just as David, also speaking of the blessing um, blessing on the man to whom God credits, righteousness apart from works. Okay, we're going to stop right there. So basically the first six verses is dealing with faith righteousness always precedes work righteousness. So I have to believe in something before I do it. So I come into the room. And I have this faith, I have this trust, I have this belief 
that this chair that I'm sitting in is going to hold my weight. So I have no problem sitting down, and I prove my trust, I prove my faith, I prove my belief by sitting down on it. And then my faith is backed up by me sitting on the chair. I've proven my faith by sitting on the chair. So faith righteousness always precedes work righteousness. We believe and trust in Messiah's finished work on the cross. Therefore, we obey and live out his teachings, which, is, which his teachings is the foundation of the five books of Moses. That's where all of our spirituality and morality stems from. Everything is built upon those five books. What the prophet said was built on those five books. What the psalmist and in, 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 uh, the proverb says is built on those first five books. And likewise with the renewed covenant. Every, you know, it's not that they were revealing anything new. They were revealing what prophecy, what, what prophecy had been fulfilled you know, through the scriptures. Okay. So we believe and trust in Messiah's finished work on the cross. Then we obey and live out his teachings, which the foundation is the Torah. Because in Matthew chapter 5, he says, don't think that I've come to do away with the Torah, with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. And that Greek word fulfill means to, to bring into its full, complete meaning and understanding with the purpose of doing it yourself. It just doesn't mean fill it up and then it's like a full glass, you don't have to fill it up anymore. It means to bring into its full and complete meaning and understanding. See, that's, that's another way that we kind of lose things in translation. That word fulfill is accurate, but it doesn't really bring totally across the meaning of the Greek there. All right, so in connection with the first six verses, I want to read a couple um, other passages of Scripture that back this up. So I want it to read, if I can find it here, Hebrews. And uh, that's proof right there that men are supposed to make coffee. Because he brews. That's right. So Tracy, you need to stop making coffee at Harvest House. You're sinning. You need no, just kidding. Just I've got kidding. a t-shirt that says that. Yeah. Just kidding. Just teasing. Hebrews. Okay, so uh, Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews chapter eleven, verse eight says, By faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. I think it's Genesis 12 where God says, go. And Abraham's like, well, where? Where to, Lord? I'll let you know when you get there. So he was actually just going and not knowing where he was going. But he trusted God and he proved that he trusts God, that God was going to lead him to where he wanted to go by just simply going and not knowing where he was going. Now, jumping down to verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Yes, he who had received the promise, which the promise was Isaac, he was the promised son. Because remember, Sarah was barren, couldn't have kids, and they just have one kid. One kid of their own. And here God says, I want you to sacrifice him. But by faith, when Abraham was tested, offered up Isaac, yes, was offering up his one and only son, the one about whom it was said, through Isaac, offspring shall be named for you. He reasoned that God was able to raise him from the dead. In a sense, he did receive him back from there. So... God's like, okay, the only logical explanation that you want me to kill Isaac is that you're going to resurrect him. Not just resurrect a dead corpse, resurrect from ash, because Isaac was to be a burnt offering. He was to be cremated. But of course, we know the story that there was the ram caught in the thicket and the ram was substituted, which points to Yeshua, right? 
But the thing is, is that Abraham was ready to go through with it. He had so much belief he was going to go through with it, slit his son's throat, drain him dry of blood, chop him up into little bits, and then set him on fire, and that God was going to raise him from the dead from that. And because he believed it, and God knew he believed it, and was about to go through with it, and then God said, wait, don't lay a hand on the boy. Look over there. There's a ram caught by the horn in the thickets. All right, so also to kind of back up uh, the first six verses of Romans chapter 4, I want to go to, to Yaakov, James, James chapter 2, verses 18 through 26, which reads like this. But someone will say, you have faith. And I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But do you want to know, you empty person, that faith without works is dead? Wasn't Abraham our father proved righteous by his works when he offered up Isaac his son at the altar? You see that faith worked together with his works, and by works his faith was made complete. The scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So twice now in the New Testament, we see Genesis 15, 6 quoted. You see that a man is proved righteous by his works, and not by faith alone. So if you remember the example that I gave last week, if I was just suddenly realized I'd been poisoned... And I had a vial of the antidote right there that would nullify the poison and keep me from dying. I could sit here and look at that vial of, of antidote all I want and say, yep, I believe with all my heart that this, I have faith that this, this will save me. So what? If I don't take it, I'm going to die. I can believe all I want. I've got to act upon that belief and I've got to take that vial of antidote in order to be saved from the poison. So... Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is proved righteous by his works and not by faith alone. Likewise, you know, people, we, we run into this all the time, especially when you're witnessing somebody that you know doesn't go to any fellowship, doesn't crack open their Bible, does not live according to the word of God, but yet they say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I believe that he died on the cross. Well, that's great that you believe, but you don't live it. So you may have faith, but your faith is not backed up by your, your works. Your works needs to back up that faith you claim you have, that belief you, th you think you have. So a person who just has intellectual faith, they're not going to go to heaven because they're not working out their, their faith with fear and trembling. It's not enough to simply believe. You've got to act upon that belief. And that's why the whole once saved, always saved is a bunch of nonsense. That's why Calvinism is, is you know, nonsense. Because you have to persevere in the faith. You have to keep going in the faith. You have to keep that faith active and, and keep that faith in maintenance. You know, it's like, a, it's like a car. You've got to maintain a vehicle. And what, is, what does it take to maintain a vehicle? Works. I've got to have it in for regular checkups. I've got to keep the, the oil and the transmission fluid topped off. I've got to make sure the spark plugs are, are, are you know clean. I've got to make sure the battery's charged. I've got to make sure there's gas in the tank. All that kind of stuff. And likewise, uh, wasn't Rahab, the prostitute, also proven righteous by her works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. 
Now, James is sort of like, okay, let's say that Romans is the big mob boss. And James is the lieutenant to the, the to Romans, the big mob boss. So the big, big mob boss Romans will say something like, you know, he might, uh, he might say something like, uh, pay up or it's curtains for you. And then the lieutenant will back up what, what the big boss man, Roman, said. He'd say, yeah, curtains. We've seen this on shows all the time, right? When the boss will say something and his lackey will repeat it. Well, that's kind of what James does with Romans. He's backing up Romans by basically saying the same thing, you know. Pay up or it'll be curtains for you. Yeah, curtains. You hear what he said? Curtains. <laughs> that's kind of like the way it is. All right. So our salvation is a gift from God, not earned by works, uh, then given to us as compensation for what we've done. I'm sure everybody understands that. So my daughter never earned my love, care, or provision. She simply trusted my love uh, for her and received care as a result of my love. So does that kind of clear things up and help make, make sense of things? All right. Now let's move on to verses 7 and 8 of Romans chapter 4. Blessed are those blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose <laughs> sins are covered. Okay? So the way that sins were were covered it was it was basically an analogy. It wasn't literal because Hebrews talks about all the sacrifices pointing to Yeshua, pointing to something greater. It was having in the faith of the Messiah that was going to that was promised, the faith in the Messiah that was going to come. So it says the blood and bull the blood of bulls and goats could never cover or compensate or cover or take away sin. But it was called Yom Kippur. When the Yom Kippur sacrifice was was made, it was Yom Kippur means to cover. So basically what happened to sins it's like a woman sweeping a house and she, looking around for the dustpan. She can't find a dustpan. She's in a hurry. So she lifts up a little throw rug and puts all the dust under the rug and covers it up. Now, you can't see the dust, but the dust is still there. It's just covered. And that's what symbolically the Levitical sacrifices did. They covered the sin, but the sins were still there. It's like racking up you know, debt, and then somebody comes along and pays that debt later. It's like a credit card. You buy things on credit because you know you're eventually going to pay off your credit card. Well, that's kind of the way all the Levitical sacrifices was. Then when Yeshua came, he, not, he just didn't cover the sin. He annihilated it. He took the sin away. He threw the rug off and found the dustpan and swept up the dirt and put it in the garbage. Okay. Um, so, all right, verse 7 again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sins Adonai will never count against him. So because Yeshua could take away sins by the power of his blood, we sin, we feel crappy about it, and even we ask God to forgive us, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But man, I still feel so bad. So I'm going to go back and ask God to forgive me again. Lord, remember what I did just a few minutes ago and ask forgiveness? Please forgive me. He's like, what, what sin? I don't know what you're talking about. It's not that God is stupid, but God forgave your sin, so there's nothing to forgive. It's the problem is we can't forgive ourselves. <laughs> That's the problem there. All right, so... In connection with verses 7 and 8, I want to read something the psalmist said. So in Psalm 31, 
Psalm 31, verses 1 and 2. Yeah, I hate it when these pages get stuck together. Okay. In you, Adonai, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Turn your ear to me and rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a stronghold for my deliverance. All right, so we see in verses 7 and 8, verse 8 actually quotes what I just read. Not only that, but it also quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is pardoned. Blessed is the one whose guilt Adonai does not count, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we see how Romans uh, uh, 4, 7 and 8 quotes Psalm 31, 1 and 2, and 32, 1 and 2. Okay. All right, now moving on to verse 9 of Romans 4. Is this, the, is this blessing then only on the circumcised? So whenever that word circumcised in this context is being spoken of, it's spoken of somebody who's, be, who's born Jewish, who's born of the 12 tribes, who's born from the seed of Abraham, to which there is an obligation to be circumcised. So it says, is this blessing only to the circumcised or to the Jews, to the Hebrews, to the 12 tribes of Israel, to Abraham's seed, or also to the uncircumcised? Basically, the Gentiles. Or, we could also include in that Jews or Hebrews that were off into captivity and they assimilated into the places where that. So they're no longer considered Jewish by Jewish standards. They have assimilated and essentially become Gentile. For we say, trust was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And again, that's quoting Genesis 5, 6, or 15, 6. All right, verses 10 through 22. Wow, we're breezing through this today. Even as uh, even though we've gone around a lot of bunny trails and mulberry bushes. All right, so Romans 4, verse 10. In what state then was it credited? While circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the trust he had while he was uncircumcised. So he might be the father of all, Jew and Gentile basically, who, who are trusting while uncircumcised that righteousness might be credited to them as well. So basically, God considered Abraham righteous before he was circumcised, hinting that eventually the Gentile nations who are uncircumcised by nature, can eventually come to the faith. But when he becomes circumcised, he became essentially a Jew, a Hebrew, because he made that covenant with God, and everybody after him, born from his line, was to be circumcised, because that was the Abrahamic covenant. But he was considered righteous and had faith before his circumcision. It was his circumcision that proved his faith, that backed up his faith. Verse 12, also, he is the father of the circumcised to those not only circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps and trust in our father Abraham before his circumcision. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed to become heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness based on trust. For if those who are of the Torah and heirs trust has become empty and the promise is made ineffective. For the Torah brings about wrath, 
Why? Because it tells us what's right and wrong. And when we do wrong, we can't claim ignorance. We know better, and we're punished. For the Torah brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there a violation. For this reason, it depends on trust, so that the promise according to grace might be guaranteed to all the offspring, not only to those of the Torah, but also those of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Just as the little song says, Father Abraham had many sons. Remember that Sunday school song? Many sons had Father Abraham. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. And that's true because when he promised that you would, he would be the father of nations, that word used is goyim, which is the Greek word Gentile, which means nations. So we know um, – and see, I think this also kind of prophetically hints and testifies about the ten tribes – being scattered abroad and mingling with the Gentile nations as well. Okay. Uh, all right. Verse. Okay. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he trusted, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist. In hope beyond hope, he trusted that he would become the father of many nations according to what it is spoken. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he considered his own body as good as dead. So why did he consider his body as good as dead? He was too old to have kids. Not only was, was Sarah past the age of childbearing, she's already gone through menopause, but when Sarah laughed to herself and said, you know, my husband's old and I'm old, Am I going to, you know, now just have this joy of having children? And the Lord said, well, why did you laugh? She said, I didn't laugh. He's like, oh, yes, you did. You did laugh. When he, re when he reiterated these words to Abraham, he left out the part where Sarah said, my husband's old, implying he's impotent. He can't get it up anymore. And that would, have, that would cause Abraham embarrassment and to lose face. So to save marital relations, God omitted that part of what Sarah said. But it hints to the fact that both Abraham and Sarah were both impotent. They were both barren. Now, interestingly enough, uh, with the Hebrew language, it was Abram and Sarai. God changed their names, and when he changed their names, he only added one letter to their name, and that was the Hebrew letter He. He is the Hebrew letter that represents breath. He, the breath of life. And it was the breath of life that God breathed into Abraham and he became, or Adam, and he became a living soul. So when that hay was added to Abraham and Sarah, symbolically, they were no longer barren. They were no longer dead. They were no longer impotent. They had spiritually found the fountain of youth and were able to conceive children again. So that's kind of a cool thing about the Hebrew interpretation and the Hebrew letters and stuff. Okay. Uh, and without becoming weak in faith, he considered his own body as good as dead since he was already a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, he did not waver in unbelief concerning the promise of God. Rather, he strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced that what God has promised, he also, excuse me, is able to do. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. All right. So to comment on these 12 through 22, when Abraham was deemed righteous, 
or when was Abraham deemed righteous or faithful before God? Before or after circumcision? Before. Yeah, he, yeah, he was considered righteous before his circumcision, right? Because we, because he was deemed righteous and or faith by God, he circumcised himself and Ishmael and his whole household because he believed. He proved his faith by circumcising himself, Ishmael, and the rest of the household. So Abraham's faith was the reason and motive for circumcision. He didn't say, well, I have to circumcise myself to be saved. I have to circumcise myself to be right with God. He's like, no, I'm going to circumcise myself because I'm already right with God. He already declared me and deemed me righteous because I believe in him, because I have faith and trust in what he says. So verse 11 kind of bears that out. Um, and not only that, but we also boast... Oh, Hang on, I'm reading the wrong chapter here. Okay, 4.10. In what state then was it credited, while circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So again, Abraham was circumcised as a result of his faith. Verse 12. Uh, hang on. Nope, verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the trust he had while he was uncircumcised. So I might be the father of all trusting while uncircumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them as well. Uh, okay, so this basically hints that eventually the Gentiles would be brought in to the family of God and to the faith of Abraham. And that occurred in uh, Acts chapter 15. Verse 12, also he is the father of the, of the circumcised to those not only circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the trust of our father Abraham before he was circumcised. <clears throat> so if one walks in Abraham's footsteps, what will he do? He will get circumcised. Again, this is an Abrahamic commandment reiterated in the Mosaic covenant, so it's optional for Gentiles. But it is believed that Gentiles who feel compelled to be circumcised might very well be part of Abraham's seed and just don't know it. Because there's ten tribes scattered all over the world who've lost their identity throughout the centuries that have passed. And so they believe that God has kind of put a homing beacon in every Hebrew's heart and it will draw them back. And that's exactly what happened to me. I had no idea I was Jewish until I started poking around my family tree. But I've always had... An interest in Judaism. I always had an affinity for Jewish belief and customs and was fascinated with Hebrew and all this. Come to find out, I was Jewish all along. And so even though I was circumcised at birth, I had what's called a Hadafat Dambrit, which if you're already circumcised and you want to convert to Judaism or identify with the Abrahamic covenant, you'll have what's called a Hadafat Dambrit. You can't get recircumcised. Because the foreskin's not like, like hair. It doesn't grow back. You can't trim it again. So you take what's like a diabetic lancet, and you just prick that area of the foreskin that had already been circumcised. You extract a drop of blood from that, and that is called the Hadafat Dambrit, that you've, you've cut the covenant with blood by, by, by doing that. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So if Israel believed in the death angel, here's another example. Okay, remember the Passover. If Israel believed in the death angel, what would they show to prove that they believed in the death angel? They would put the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorframe. That's how they proved that they believed that that death angel was coming. And they wanted that death angel to pass over them 
So to prove that they believed, they acted upon that belief by putting the blood of the Passover lamb on the door frames. Kind of similar there. <clears throat> All right, verses 15, 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham uh, or to his seed to become heir of the world was not through, through law, but through the righteousness based on trust. <laughs> For if those who are of the Torah are heirs, trust has become empty and the promise is made ineffective. For the Torah brings about wrath, but, there, but where there is no law, neither there is a violation. So one covenant builds upon and confirms or solidifies the other. So the following covenant doesn't negate or make obsolete the prior covenant. And so far through the Bible, there's been seven covenants and each one, it's like a stair step. It builds on the other. There's the identic covenant, which purpose was to sustain order. And the promise of this covenant was God promised, um, his, God gave his promise to creation. There was the Adamic covenant and its purpose was management of the created order by Adam and also the coming redemption because of the fall, Genesis uh, 3.16. The promise is God's uh, promise of protection. The third covenant was the Noadic covenant, and that was that promise never to destroy the earth with a flood, well, a watery flood. So the promise was uh, God's preservation. The fourth is the Abrahamic covenant, which was by the covenant between the parts and by circumcision. And that the purpose of that Abrahamic covenant was land and descendants. And the promise of that covenant was redemption. You have the Mosaic covenant, and that purpose was kingdom law. In other words, the Torah, the 613 commandments. The promise was his instructions. So we'll know how to live. The sixth was the Davidic covenant, and the purpose was uh, a royal dynasty to the Davidic line, which eventually would produce the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Yeshua. So the promise was his kingdom and his Messiah. So there are the final covenant, which is kind of lumping all of the previous covenants in one big nice package with a bow, is called the renewed covenant. The Brit Chadesha, or we know it as the New Testament. So its purpose was to reaffirm all the above covenants and the fulfilling of all the above covenants. And the promise was restoration. Because in the beginning, he created the garden, right? Eden. We read Revelation 21. It's all going to be restored. New heaven, new earth. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The lion and the wolf, or, or the, the, the wolf and the sheep will play together. The child will play by a cobra hole and not have to worry about getting bit by the cobra. Everything's going to go back to an Edenic state. So restoration is ultimately the goal. Of, of everything. All right. So verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> uh, yeah, 14 and 15. For if those who are of the Torah are heirs, trust has become empty and the promise is made ineffective. For the Torah brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither there is a violation. The Abrahamic covenant is based on an inheritance being passed down. The only requirement is to be born of Abraham's line. It's not contingent upon any work or action. Remember when the covenant between the parts, Abraham slept through that whole ritual. 
The tradition was is that all these animals were sacrificed, creating a bloody red carpet, and each participant in the covenant would walk through that blood saying, if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to me. God's the only one who walked that path in the form of the flaming torch. Abraham slept through the whole thing. He wasn't obligated to do anything. So, uh, the Mosaic covenant of the Torah is a conditional covenant, whereas the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. Abraham hadn't, didn't have to do anything to receive the benefits of that covenant because he slept through it. He had no obligation. God was, had to do it all. Whereas the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant because it's worded, if you do this, then I will do that. Or if you do this, then that will happen. And we see this played out in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 28 in the blessings of the cursings. If you do this, blessings will follow. If you do that, curses will follow. So the covenant is conditional, and we know that because the word if. All right, now, verses 16 through 25. For this reason, it depends on trust, so that the promise according to grace might be guaranteed to all the offspring, not only to those of the Torah, but also those of the faith of, Abra of Abraham. <laughs> he is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. And that's Genesis 7 or 17, 5. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he trusted, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist. So that's you know kind of reiterating about the barrenness of Sarah and Abraham and they couldn't have children. So he called into existence that which didn't exist. In hope beyond hope, he trusted that he would become the father of many nations according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And that is quoting Genesis 15:5. And without becoming weak in faith, he considered his own body as good as dead, since he was already a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief concerning the promise of God. Rather, he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced that what God has promised, he is also able to do. That is why it is credited to him as righteousness. Now, not only for his sake was it written that it was accredited to him, but for our sake as well. It is credited to us as those who trust in him who raised Yeshua, our Lord, from the dead. So that is kind of encapsulating the sacrifice of Abraham or uh, Isaac and, you know, having that picture there. Because Isaac was as good as dead. Jesus was totally dead. And God resurrected him. Verse 25, he was handed over for our transgressions and raised up uh, for the sake of setting us right. And that is quoting um, Isaiah 53, 4 and 11. All right. So if I had a son and told him, when you turn 16, I promise to give you my classic 1973 Chevy Nova. Does my son then have to do anything to get the car except turn 16? No. Nope. Same applies if we've been adopted sons. So we know that we're adopted into the family of Abraham when we have faith in Yeshua. And then there's that spiritual circumcision, which doesn't replace physical circumcision. But remember in past lessons, I said the spiritual circumcision was an Old Testament thing before it was a New Testament thing. That's where the New Testament got it from. It's from the Old Testament. So the same applies if we've been adopted sons. 
And so I want to kind of solidify that or, or, or um, um, you know, kind of prove my point with that by reading Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Man, that must be the most quoted verse in all the New Testament. Know then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So those who have faith, not specifying Jew or Gentile, implying everybody. The scriptures foresee that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the good news to Abraham in advance, saying, All nations shall be blessed through you. So then the faithful are blessed along with Abraham, the faithful one. Now this goes back all the way to when the law was given at Sinai. It was given predominantly again to Israel, the 12 tribes, but also the 70 nations were there. They had representatives there, the mixed multitude. They also agreed, standing right beside, because it says that God spoke in thunders, which is the Hebrew word for voices. So everybody, like on the day of Pentecost, heard in their own native language God's expectations. And they say, yep, sounds good to us. We'll do it. And so it's almost as if this is kind of the redemption of the entire world because of what happened at Sinai, in a sense. Um, okay. So, so the Gentiles have been grafted in. All right. So I also want to go uh, jump ahead to Romans chapter 11 that talks about this adoption. And we'll read 17 through 24. <clears throat> But if some of the branches were broken off, meaning those of the original tree, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being wild olive were grafted in among them. So this is implying pure Gentiles, but it's also implying those of Israel who were assimilated into the nations and are just pretty much as good as Gentile. They have really no connection to Abraham because of their exile and just losing their identity. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being wild olive were grafted in among them and became a partaker of the root of the olive tree with its richness, do not boast against the branches. For if you do not, for if you do boast, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will then, you will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, true enough. They were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith, which is belief. Do not be arrogant, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Notice then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who fell, but God's kindness towards you. If you continue in his kindness, so faith has to be something that's maintained, not just an intellectual belief, and that's good enough. You got to work. You got to have works to prove it. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Um, verse 24, For if you were cut out of that by which nature is a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? All right. So, uh, you know, uh, Galatians 3 and Romans 11 kind of back up what we read in uh, Romans 4, 16 through 25. So faith is a belief. Circumcision was physical proof of that belief. 
And that's similar to water baptism for Protestant Christians. So, you know, they express their, they publicly express their belief and their faith by getting baptized to show, to symbolize, you know, the, the going into the waters like going into the grave, coming out of the waters like the resurrection. So it mimics what Yeshua did three days in the tomb and rose from the dead. In Christ, we are the new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. So we were spiritually dead and were resurrected in new spiritual life. All right. Wow. We actually made it through Romans chapter 4. Now, that's not to say I might rewind and go back every once in a while because, again, I'm still studying this. So I might find some stuff that I missed and some really cool stuff that I'll share with you. So uh, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we truly want to thank you for, man, I don't know about anybody else, but I could really feel your presence this afternoon in this class. And thank you, Lord, for being able to feel your presence. That's just icing on the cake. By faith, we know you're always with us, whether we feel you or not. But Lord, thank you, Lord, for guiding my speech. Thank you, Lord, for prepping and priming and opening up our hearts and minds to understanding. Um, now that we have this knowledge, let's not just sit on it. Let's meditate on it. Let's chew on it. Let's assimilate it. Let's make it a part of our being. And then let's go out and live it so that others can see and will want to come to you because of what they see in us. And again, Lord, we are 2,000 years removed from Paul's writing. Not only removed by geography, but by culture, by language, um, you know, just a lot of things. So a lot of things have gotten lost and buried over the centuries. And so we're trying to, to uncover like archaeologists and dig through all these 2,000 years of dirt that's been put on Romans to get down to the bedrock, take our little brushes and brush it, brush off the stuff so that we can see these archaeological findings and understand what Paul meant when he penned these words, who he penned them to, and what he meant when he penned them, so that we can get a better understanding in our modern day how we can make it applicable to us in our modern day and life. Because your word is timeless. Just because it's 2,000 years old doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us or it's obsolete. And uh, so, Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.